the cause and effect a podcast from the winnipeg foundation where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives my name is nolan bicknell adele perry is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to history indigenous studies and human rights She's the Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of History at the University of Manitoba. She's the Director of the Centre for Human Rights Research and is a Distinguished Professor in the Departments of History and Women's and Gender Studies in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Manitoba. So needless to say, she knows her stuff. So if you think about, you know, the, the story of kind of Manitoba's entry into Confederation, which is something students, if they've gone to high school in Manitoba, probably learned a fair bit about. Um, it can sort of be narrated in this way that really underestimates and really kind of sucks the, the life and the, the content out of what was an incredibly important, um, quite violent and consequential um, conflict and then dispossession that followed. I sat down with Adele Perry to talk about her expertise in Indigenous and gender studies, what we can learn from Indigenous ways of knowing, and the historical context that's relevant to the COVID-19 epidemic. And I'm now joined via Zoom by Adele Perry. She is the Distinguished Professor in the Department of History and Women's and Gender Studies and also the Director for the Center of Human Rights Research at the University of Manitoba. Adele, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking about lots of stuff. History, for one, um, <laughs> maybe women's and gender studies and all the, things that, all the things that you're an expert in. But before we get into your expertise, let's talk a little bit about COVID. And obviously, you're working from home today. What has that been like for you uh, over the last you know, few months? And, and how have you adapted to this new world that we're living in? Right. So I think it's, it's moments like this that we are very aware that we're living through history, right? Like we're always living through history all the time. Um, but I think these last six months have, have made that clear in, in crystal um, and at times really fascinating and at times really overwhelming ways. Um, so I think I'm living, we're all living through through history. I'm thinking about histories of disease and pandemic differently um, than I might have. And I think that's, that's true of many of us. And this is also a moment where we get a sense about histories that often I think many of us assume to be kind of minor or not particularly significant take on new um, importance. And I'm thinking of here, like um, colleagues of mine, like Dr. Leah Morton, who's at the Manitoba Museum, who works on the history of the polio pandemic in Manitoba. Mm. Um, Dr. Essel Jones, who's worked on um, histories of influenza pandemic of 1918, 19. And, and these were kind of parts of, of history that I was aware of and mindful of, but but now I am I'm much more aware of, of what they mean and, and have meant. Mm. Um, and I think looking at things like the very um, really robust and I think really significant response um, to COVID by uh, First Nations in Manitoba and Northwestern Ontario is a, is a really striking example of um, the ways that those communities, which have very kind of long and complicated and often really costly histories of pandemics, um, have really kind of utilized um, the medical expertise and the knowledge of those communities and, and are really is an enormous sort of success story um, mm -hmm. of, of to what extent they have, they have done so with real kind of efficacy. Mm. Um, in the short term, um, I went, started teaching online. I remember that Thursday in March, I met my second year class and I told them that we were going online. And um, I think I was the first class that had, the first prof who had made that announcement just because the way the time happened. And I remember the looks on all of their faces. 
Um, and I remember thinking what was really important in that moment was to have a clear plan. And um, I'm grateful that the University of Manitoba, the faculty of arts where I teach, and this is actually true for Canadian institutions as a whole, um, made some really hard decisions in those kind of early days in March, um, which over the course of the summer when Manitoba kind of had very much like a COVID light kind of experience, you know, we didn't really get our first wave until August was often seeming like maybe those responses were overkill. You know, maybe we really didn't have to be kind of doing all of this stuff. But now as numbers um, have gotten worse as we entered our first wave in August and we haven't quite gotten out of it. And as um, schools to the south have kind of reopened often to very sort of significant costs. Um, I'm grateful, I'm glad that we made that the people at the University of Manitoba and other institutions in Canada made the calls they have. But it has meant that we've all had to learn to use um, different technologies. We've had to learn to share things that we might not normally um, share as much. So I am currently working at home um, with somewhat questionable home Wi-Fi, which uh, mm -hmm. various people have tried to fix various times and it never really gets super fantastic. <laughs> shared between um, one kid who's in high school and one kid who is in post-secondary and was studying in a different city but is now studying here at home and mm. then my partner who's also using home wi-fi so four people using wi-fi one wi-fi signal um, and this is of course replicated the world over mm. i'm also really aware that uh, people in northern manitoba um, have very uneven access to to the 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 very even kind of basic questions of kind of connectivity that we have and that there's a digital divide. Um, and I hope we come out of this whenever we come out of this um, with attention to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not just Northern, but like even people in Canada or in, in Winnipeg itself don't have access to, you know, Wi-Fi. How are you going to do school if you don't have good Wi-Fi connection? You know, it's, it's a weird time for, for, just the average kid or, or someone who doesn't have access to a lot of these technologies. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, uneven access to technology and to connectivity. Um, and I think too, like, it's hard to be, I'm 52. It's hard to be 52 this year, but I also <laughs> think it's really, really hard to be a kid, you know, and including uh, students. So I am post-secondary students. I am, um, these are complicated years to live through mm -hmm. and um, we've asked so much of them really to, mm -hmm. you know changing and and many of the things you know that that were the, the better experiences for a lot of us of school and stuff you know just aren't available to mm -hmm. them and, and th those are for good reasons but there's a lot of loss i think mm -hmm. and, and i think it's going to take us all a while to yeah to work through this. Well, I want to drill down a little bit about what you said when it comes to living through history, because I've been sort of equating it to you remember the world before 9-11, and I, and I think you remember how the world changed after that. And I'm hoping and thinking that we're going to sort of have a pre-COVID memory of how the world was, and now that the, and then it'll be a post-COVID of how, you know, now we... You know, just even with how we deal with restaurants and how we deal with businesses and how we deal with like riding the bus and things. So how how has your research or your talking with some of your your friends who are experts in history affected how you look at this pandemic and, and how you're kind of seeing it with through that lens? Like, have you have you have you given that much thought? 
Yeah, well, I think about it a fair bit. It's so funny. One of my kids who's 16 was saying the other day, he's like, are we really going to remember this year? Like, is this year important? And I'm like, oh, man, yes. But but I'm also mindful of of the way that we have been here before, you know, mm-hmm. like pandemics are not a new part of history and pandemics on this scale um, are not entirely new either. And I know that we very rarely kind of think and commemorate those pandemic histories. So we often know the marks they leave on individuals. So I I think in particular about one of my grandmothers who was born in 1906 and who Mm -hmm. I knew growing up um, and a couple of things. One, she was um, extraordinarily focused on hand washing. Mm -hmm. Like like it was really (laughs) like an organizing principle of her life. You know, Um, she gave everybody in the household a paper serviette in the morning and you were expected to keep it all day. Like you had everybody had their own. There was no intermingling of serviettes. Um, she was part of a generation of, of women, of kind of white middle-class women, and this was in Vancouver, that wore white cotton gloves, like on the bus and when they went shopping. Um, and when I started going to thrift stores in the 1980s, they were still, there was boxes of these gloves, you know, everywhere left over from that generation. Mm-hmm. But now I see these so much as kind of pandemic, sort of flu pandemic habits and you know the the 1918 1919 1920 because it went on for three years um h1n1 pandemic was enormously significant in western canada it was um, hugely significant in winnipeg it was really important um, in indigenous communities but in ways that i think then like it marked the that the world it marked those people Mm. but then with very few exceptions, we also kind of get back on it once it's mm-hmm. over, right? Yeah. And, and we kind of lose sight of it. So I have these startling moments, and I'm sure you do too, when you like look at photographs, or when I think about that classroom on that day on March 15th, when I told them that we were going online, and I think there were 60 people in that room. <laughs> That's not, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, but yeah. we've, yeah. I've, I'm having that that same issue watching old TV shows when people are like, you know, spit you know high-fiving or like all the sort of things that are just appalling now you just don't do that so I wonder how much of it is gonna be imprinted on us and how much is gonna be temporary you know like I think about that a lot but I think it's kind of fundamentally changing a lot of how we approach interacting with other people so and travel yes oh my god you know I think um and, and, and people were raising questions for a very long time about the ecological impact of, you know, air travel and organizing conferences and other kind of aspects of working life on the presumption that it was okay to fly halfway across the world to have, you know, to have meetings, for instance. And I, I do think this might be the moment um, where those patterns are, you know, reconsidered in pretty serious ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I know right now, you know, I haven't flown since... February. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the only circumstances that I would fly at this point would be under kind of really exigent family emergencies. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else, I, you know, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do. And the numbers in Canada ref- reflect that, you know, I'm not alone in that. Mm-hmm. So I think those things are going to change. It's even on a smaller scale too, like people driving to work, you know, like, why do we, uh, it's made, made me think a lot, like, why do we have to drive every day, 20 minutes, expelling you know burning gas when we've shown that society can still kind of march along without having to all congregate downtown or wherever you happen to work so yeah it's weird 
I think that's true. But I think we'll also, we are also sat with the reasons why, some of the reasons we, we did that were ingrained patterns of this idea that there had to be a separation between home and work. Mm. And that comes out of the 19th century. It's tied to ideas about gender, mm. you know, ideas about that women have a domain of, of the private and the household. It's tied to family and children and that men are creatures of economy and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tied to that. Um, but I think also, you know, we're also coming up hard against the things that, that we did get from those social experiences mm. and, and what it means to lose those connections, right? Yeah. And I think uh, folks who are looking at patterns of labor and, um, you know, intimate violence, um, stress, mental health, all register the ways that, that this idea suddenly that we can put all of these things that we used to do in all of these places into this one place mm-hmm. um, also costs a lot and costs some people more than others. Are you, because of your historical um, contextual knowledge, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic when you think about sort of how we're going to come out the other end of this? Where do you land? Right. It's uh, a good question. I think I'm, I'm reflexively a pretty optimistic person. Um, but I also know from history that patterns are huge. Mm. And I know that we have had moments of kind of reckoning before um, that have not necessarily re- reordered the world. Mm. Um, so I would hope that we come out of this um, with a different sense of things like universal basic income, Mm -hmm. for instance, which is something that is kind of on the table again, that has not really been on the table. Um, I hope we come out of it with a national system of childcare. And so that was Mm -hmm. something that came up in the throne speech yesterday. Um, It has been something that every federal government with the exception of the Harper government has made a commitment to since the 1960s. So all Mm -hmm. of my life, more than your life. Right. So my entire life, this has been something that every federal government with one notable exception has said should happen because it's pretty clear that it would be a good idea, mm-hmm. um, but hasn't happened. So maybe we'll come out of this with that, this sort of recognition that in order for there to be any resemblance of gender equity, in order for children to have better access to the things they need to have a good life, that we need to, to seriously think about childcare differently. We need to fund and pay for it differently. We need mm-hmm. to value it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope we come out of it with that. Um, yeah, those are, I guess, would be my, my basic hope. Yeah. So this th- this has been happening for since the 60s, yet you're still optimistic? They've been saying this. And- not yeah, the- right. I know. Well, I'm not that optimistic. I mean, I guess, but it, but also I will also say, and this is something that as you live through history, as you get older, becomes clear at a certain point, is that suddenly things change sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I remember this is like a, just a sort of a bit of a drive-by example. But one thing that I think about a fair bit is in the 80s, a very long time ago, um, when the apartheid regime in South Africa um, was really um, clamping down and kind of um, doubling down on its power and its authority and its violence and its racism. And in that context, Nelson Mandela was in jail and he had been in jail in Roblin Island for a really long time. Um, and there was no information about him. Every once in a while, some information would leak out and we all learned something about how his health was or what he'd written or whatever. 
And then that regime fell and Mandela ended up being president and going on to have this kind of illustrious kind of public career and imprint on world history. But had anybody gone to me in the early 1980s and said that was what was going to happen to Nelson Mandela, I would have been like, get out, right? Like mm -hmm. there's no possible way. Like that's not on the table. Um, he is a political prisoner in a regime that wants to keep him that and it is a regime that has enormous power and authority and staying power and then it shifted. So I am also aware that there are patterns and there are history and there is power and those are big structures, but sometimes things do shift. Mm -hmm. How um, and I would hope that some of these things shift. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about the indigenous response and how that's been dealing with COVID. Can you give me a little bit of historical context about have you been, sorry, maybe for first of all, have you been in Winnipeg your, your whole life or you started in Vancouver, you said? Yeah, so I grew up in BC in Vancouver and a little bit in Victoria. And then I went to graduate school in Toronto for cool. a long time. Yeah. And then I came to Manitoba in the fall of 99. So I okay, lived here cool. for a little over 20 years. So you are the award-winning co-author of Structures of Indifference and Indigenous Life and Death in a Canadian City. Um, obviously, that was a pretty disturbing story when it happened a few years back. Um, how have you noticed since being in Winnipeg, the response maybe to indigenous people and how their plight has been um, recognized and or ignored or, you know, how, how, how have things changed over the last 21 years of you being in Winnipeg when it, when it comes to how people, how indigenous people have been treated? That's a big question, obviously. But. Yeah, it's a big question. And it's probably a question that and I would think so I'm a non indigenous person. And I think one of the, the lessons of both um, kind of feminist scholarship, but also anti racist scholarship and in indigenous studies is that our locations and where we come from and what we know matter and they affect how we see the world and what we can see and what we can't see. So I would think that's a question that is probably better answered by indigenous people who've, who've lived through these histories in Winnipeg. But I guess what I would see as, as kind of the bigger patterns um, or some of the bigger patterns that have happened and that I'm aware of thinking a little bit about the 19th century of Red River then becoming part of Canada mm -hmm. um, through a very difficult process um, and one that involved you know, dispossession and violence is that in a sense that Winnipeg was very much in the last part of the 19th century, a very much an indigenous city. And then there has been, there was, um, and there continues to be in certain ways um, in very impactful, or I don't even know if that's a proper word, but in consequential ways, um, efforts to kind of create Winnipeg as a non-indigenous space. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are um, efforts that are both formal and informal. Um, but in lots of ways, I think since the 1960s um, and certainly since the 19, um, in the years that I've lived in Winnipeg, for a whole range of ways, those efforts um, have, have been challenged by indigenous people who I think have been reclaiming the city. Um, and I, so I think one thing I want to emphasize is the way that that is a reclamation, right, rather than an arrival, um, because this is an indigenous place. You know, 1870, when Manitoba entered Confederation um, as, you know, a postage stamp province that basically stretched from the border at Emerson to Gimli, you know, a little, just a little square. Um, you know, it was a city that was 
significantly Métis, um, but also significantly Anishinaabe and Inuak, um, and this was an indigenous place. And the process that, that challenged that, that, that made it a place that was uncomfortable, um, violent, difficult for indigenous people, um, was a political process. And it was a, a social process and an economic one. And I think it's one that the really kind of robust and um, active and important kind of um, group of indigenous writers and artists and scholars and academics and historians and politicians um, in the last 20 years, especially, but really since, the, since, you know, forever, I think I really kind of profoundly kind of made that apparent. And I guess I will say that even, you know, as a non-Indigenous person, I think one of the things I say to people when they ask me about living in Winnipeg, partially because I didn't grow up here and it's a city that a lot of people grew up in, is one of the things that I value most about the city is how Indigenous it is and, and how much I think even, you know, non-Indigenous folks like myself and my family kind of benefit from the access to the knowledge of the cultural contributions of and, and what a resource that is. And I think Winnipegers, mainstream Winnipegers don't celebrate that as, as much as we should. Like we are all lucky to live in such sort of a vibrant Indigenous city. Yeah. Well, my favorite place in the city, like anytime someone comes in from out of town, I'm like, Kate, hey, we're going to the Forks. And there is just such a breadth of, you know, amazing knowledge and experience and beauty. And like, yeah, it's it's weird to think about that people don't necessarily understand the the historical context. Have you always been a, a like history buff? Has this always been something that you were going to make your, no, make your I life work? So. No? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, like I like data, like I like information. And like, like pattern recognition. Yeah, exactly. Well, all sorts of that stuff. Like I think that there is a history as a discipline has an emphasis on kind of the archive and records and kind of anchoring arguments and assessments in a set of records. And I think we can frame that in ways that we're not assuming that any one archive is is the end all and be all and is necessarily more compelling than others. But to me, there's kind of a, a discipline, there's literally sort of a discipline to having an archive and a set of records that, that, that I like. Um, I, I really like doing research and I think I always have liked doing research. Um, so I think that history allows me to kind of do that research um, and to work with records and put things together in ways that, um, I think are kind of great. Um, and so one of the things that I really try and uh, push to, to students with varying degrees of success is that um, one of the, I think the real joys of history is, is sort of the ability um, or learning the skills that you need to kind of find out about whatever it is that you want to find out about. Um, so one thing I always say is that, you know, like the Google is a wonderful thing and we all, we all use it and we all value it. But one of the things I try and do like in history classes is try and say that there will come a time where you'll want to know more about something than the Google is able to yield up to you easily. And I want you to kind of be equipped for that, that kind of moment. I want you to kind of know what, what you can do to kind of kick it to the next level and find out more about something, whether that is, you know, uh, you know, family history or something local or something particular. It can be anything. But I think history does 
give us um, kind of the capacity to find out things that we want to know about. And that research process to me is really key. And we can bring it to the present as well. Sure. But we're always mindful about how time matters. And it's not just so much the issues, but it's the, the context, the historical moment that things occur within. Mm-hmm. How has um, the knowledge of incoming students, like brand new students that you're seeing, how has that evolved over the years since you first started teaching as far as like how equipped were people? I'm asking because in high school, we were not taught about residential school. This is, you know, I graduated in 2003. So we, I like it's shameful and and, yeah, and yeah. scary how much was omitted and how much I didn't know until yeah. I got to university and beyond. So how I'm just curious what the average kid coming in for, you know, the first class you've ever seen them, what is their, what is their knowledge base at the moment? Like do, do has, have, you know, middle schools and high schools sort of up their game when it comes to the history or, or where are they at? Well, I'll say a couple of things. One is I think that it tends to vary a lot depending on the province and Mm -hmm. and education is a provincial jurisdiction in Canada and um, province to province, it really varies. Mm -hmm. I would say within Manitoba, um, the pre-TRC and the post-TRC kind of historical moment is, is pretty significant as far as what kids generally get in high school and middle school. And there's a fair bit of variation on what that actually means, um, depending on, I think, the receptivity of teachers and schools and the particular communities in question. But as far as the basic kind of curricula um, and stuff, there is a pretty significant difference. And I'm mindful of that partially because I have my kids are the, the age, their ages mean that one went through pre-TRC mm. and one went through post. And, and it has been pretty strikingly different um and then there are certain cultural practices which aren't so much school curricula so i used to always say to students i'd be like so you know what treaty territory are we in and they would be like "Hmm." (laughs) and 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 indigenous students often knew non-indigenous students were less familiar but this recently when it's like oh we know we're in treaty one i said well how do you know why do you know that no it's just we say it every morning in the loudspeaker school and on the jets games (laughs) and i'm like and there's critique that that kind of becomes this kind of rote cultural performance where we, we talk about being in Treaty One territory. We don't know what it means, but I do think those young people know the treaties. They live with it, mm-hmm. and that is something, mm-hmm. right? And and that doesn't mean that it necessarily means a lot to them um, at that particular moment in their lives, but it they do have a certain amount of of kind of knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I think when we talk about things like, um, you know, Indigenous course requirements, like the one that's been introduced at the University of Winnipeg and other institutions, there's sometimes this idea that, that students um, won't want to do that kind of coursework mm. and are resistant. And, and I think sometimes that is the case. But I think we also have a lot of students, um, and, and often we experience this ourselves, where the most consequential parts of our own history were not taught to us. And we ended up with this sort of bland kind of whitewashed history, which does enormous disservice to histories of indigenous people and colonization. It also does enormous disservice to um, histories of of kind of racialized populations in Canada and black 
and other racialized communities, um, but also even for those of us that are non-Indigenous and white like I am, it often, it strips our history of, of what is most important in many respects. And it's often also most kind of interesting and compelling. So if you think about, you know, the, the story of kind of Manitoba's entry into Confederation, which is something students, if they've gone to high school in Manitoba, probably learned a fair bit about, um, it can sort of be narrated in this way that really underestimates and really kind of sucks the, the life and the, mm -hmm. the content out of what was an incredibly important, um, quite violent and consequential um, conflict and then dispossession that followed. Mm -hmm. And so I think also we need to also think about what it means to give students avenues into that history um, that is more accurate. Um, that gives kind of rightful place to, to histories of Indigenous people, to histories of women, to histories of other groups, but also um, is livelier and more compelling and speaks to the present because history is about the past, you know, but we're, we're, we're not living in 1870. None of us are. <laughs> That's clear. We can agree on that. Mm -hmm. um, it has to speak to us in the present. Um, so we're writing about the past, but it is always about the present. It can't really be any other way. You must be privy to, or you must be like the catalyst for a lot of awakenings in your students, you know, because, or, or no? It's hard to say. Like, I don't, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm mindful of as um, a prof, but also as a parent, is that, you know, people go through, like, we, we learn things on our own speed, right? And we learn things in our own way. And actually, I think that's one of the, the, the things that, that also that non-Indigenous communities can learn from sort of Indigenous perspectives on education and, and kind of child rearing and all of this is that, you know, people have moments that they kind of go through and it's hard to know they pass through your classrooms at particular moments in their lives. They're distracted, you know, they've got part-time jobs and families and group chats and <laughs> all sorts of other things going on in their mind. I mean, I guess I hope that at the moment that I kind of try and, um, you know, offer some things in the classroom, but also know that there's limitations to it and that it will also, you know, play out on their own terms. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I'm just kind of transferring my own experience and my own sort of reconciliation journey and how yeah. once you have the historical context, it's impossible not to want to continue down the, that path, you know? So I, I, I'm well, just curious. Sorry, go ahead. I think that's great. Like, and I think for that is what we hope for. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I also th think we need to learn how to keep going even when that isn't, when people don't respond that's not necessarily their response in the mm -hmm. short term, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think like the way you phrased it is really important. And one of the things, um, you know, that you've seen, I think the past and the present from a certain perspective, you can't unlearn it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I think, um, I always think about it, it's, it's a very kind of, it's a, I always think about like the, that line of the national anthem, like, oh, Canada, you know, our home and native land. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a way in which once you've heard that as our homes on native land, you don't hear it any other way. Like every time you hear that anthem, you, you hear that story. And that's just a, a way, it's a very kind of casual kind of example, but I think 
once you have, I think, seen these histories play out in different terms, it all should look different. And if it doesn't, we're getting it wrong. And I think that's a hard thing to sort of sometimes think through because we've all grown up, um, all of us in different ways, grown up with the consequences of practices of segregation, mm -hmm. which meant that entire histories that were happening to one community that could even be right next to ours were, were invisible to us. And that takes a lot of work, right? Like that's a big, Ooh, yeah, big, no that's a big project to have to learn how to see the world in ways that there are entire structures like residential schools, like Indian hospitals, like um, unequal access to water, well, it changes. It changes how everything is. How you look at everything once you understand, because you 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 understand like okay, police in, within that context, or hospitals within that context, or farming and agriculture within that context. Like everything gets changed the more you dig. The more you dig deep. So it's kind of like it, it really fundamentally changes Canadian life once you understand where we came from. Yeah, and I think. Um... The, in particular, the 20th century, which if you look kind of in probably the high school textbooks you had, and certainly the ones I had, um, very much sort of narrate the 20th century as this kind of century of growing equality and, and you know, better health and, you know, more resources and improving urban life and all of this stuff. And very much, you know, if you put that story of, of what happens um, to Indigenous and particularly First Nations communities, in that exact time frame, um, it sh absolutely should shift the story. Yeah. And so when it doesn't shift the story, what we get is this way that we tell the story about the 20th century, it's onwards and upwards, and it's you know sunny days ahead, and it's growing prosperity and growing opportunities, except for these people. <laughs> and that yeah. is rendered like a dark blot or a difficult part and except for these people they're not having that but i think what we have to do is we have to take what's then seen as sort of exception and actually move it to the center of the story and actually say that means that story doesn't hold <laughs> yeah no yeah kidding. that actually changes that story that we can't narrate it the same way and if we do we're, we're, we're misunderstanding it yeah i've been sort of changing the way that i frame things recently I we have this. Uh, we took this twelve-week course through the Winnipeg Foundation called Indigenous Canada, um, and at U of A. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just finished like the other day, which is which was great, and it was the first time I ever reframed um, re um, residential schools. So basically, it used to be like, oh, that's what happened to right. those those people, and yeah. the, for the first time ever, I was like, that's what happened to us to Canadians like those are my those are our kids that were taken you know and that's a different way of thinking of it oh that's their kids that were taken and I think there's something it kind of like I, I had a really emotional response to that thinking like those are our kids and the, our kids were taken from from their parents and it's a different way of thinking of it other than oh they that's what happened to them and that's what you know and, and othering the people and and I, I think if we stop doing that it's a good way to I don't know. It ch changed the way that we phrase things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. And I think the other thing we can think about doing is also explore what those structures and residential schooling is an obvious one, but there's other ones as well. Um, 
the way that what we think about this kind of 20th and 21st century kind of experience of urban prosperity and non-Indigenous Canada, what it was based on, right? So what it secured for um, us and our ancestors as non-Indigenous people. Um, And so I think that that shifts how we also see it as well. So I think you're right, like claiming those as our own histories. And I think for non-Indigenous people um, whose family histories kind of in Canada, you know, go very far into the 20th century, um, certainly into the 19th, there's probably, um, you know, there's nowhere really where you can, um, it's pretty likely that you're going to find somewhere where, where that history was involved in active and ongoing dispossession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it is part of all of our histories um, as well. And I think you're right, we've got to kind of claim it differently. But it's also, you know, not that far gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The present day is not such great stakes. Yeah. So. Yeah, my dad used to, or I, once I kind of started to learn about residential schools, I started to talk about a bit with my parents a little bit and my dad was like yeah I used to play hockey out at the residential school in Bertle like <laughs> that's 20 years or however many years ago like not long back no they, I mean they were often the big institutional buildings um, and places so I think um, so I mean the obvious example in Winnipeg is the Assiniboia school which was on academy and is still there and actually you know you can sort of see it it's now actually a child welfare organization which is an interesting kind of commentary Mm -hmm. um but i think those sorts of everyday interactions um were very much kind of part of western canadian especially because residential schools have a bigger impact on on in his in western canada than they do in in other parts of the country Yeah, but it's also about ways that, like, what does it mean to kind of think through that experience of your dad going to play hockey um, mm-hmm. and, and what that meant for, for both how he saw himself and how for those kids saw themselves. Right. Yeah, it's it's wild to think about. Well, I, I know you're busy. So at the end of our time together, um, we do a little segment called Just Because, where it's the same seven questions that I ask of everyone. And it's all about the causes you care about and sort of right. the effect that it's had on your life. Ready to do that? Yep. Okay. So the first question is, what's the very first cause you actually even remember caring about? Right. I don't even know if I remember caring about this so much. So it's not such a good example, but I have vivid memories of my parents. So I grew up in British Columbia and my parents were kind of involved in the left and various things. And for the entire first hunk of my life, they were boycotting Chilean grapes because there was this uh, political moment. Oh no, not Chilean grapes. They were boycotting grapes. Oh, See, now I'm confused about what we were boycotting. No, we were boycotting grapes that came from California because of the farm workers. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So Cesar Chavez and all of those sorts of farm workers at the moment were leading kind of grape boycotts. Wow. And I have this vivid memory the first time I ate grapes, which was a very long time. So that is my first memory. I don't know if it was a cause I cared about or if I was just imported into living through with my parents. So what would you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it was kind of a long story. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. It's weird that what we remember, hey, the first time. But I mean, would you consider yourself an activist in, in a way right now about with things? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm somebody that has tried to kind of combine sort of scholarship and activism. Um, and 
that has had a bigger impact on some of my projects than on others. Um, but one, and I wrote a book in 2016, which I have here. There is it's called Aqueduct. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and it's on histories of colonialism and drinking water in Shoal Lake Forty and the dispossession of Shoal Lake Forty in the interest of Winnipeg's water supply. And so I've been involved. Um, I, I wrote this short kind of book, which is kind of meant as an intervention into that conversation. But I've also been involved um, with a group called the Friends of Shillelagh 40 mm -hmm. that has uh, worked to kind of advocate and um, signal boost um, those questions. I think I went with that group to, was Dave, is Dave Angus involved in that at all? Yeah, has, I think he's been uh, a little, yeah. Because I went with him and a, another group through the foundation and like went to Shillelagh 40 and, and right. sort of experienced it there. Yeah, it was really yeah. like a wild, yeah. once you see that, it's like, okay, how can like... Right. This is unacceptable. Yeah, sure. it's, it's exactly. interesting. So, uh, qu question two: it, What? Or sorry, if money, politics, and logistics were no issue at all, what's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause that you're most passionate about? Oh, in support of money, question logistics. One, I would think that. Um, I think I would think about changing kind of curricula and, and teaching. And I would think about some of the educational experiences you've had as somebody who took the U of A's um, massive online course, Indigenous Canada, um, and things like being able to participate in uh, the Museum for Canadian Human Rights violation at Shoal Lake 40's mm -hmm. tour. Um, these are things that have changed how you think, um, and you are not alone. And so I would think about ways that those sorts of educational um, opportunities could be disseminated to larger and larger audiences. Mm -hmm. So important. Education is the it. It's what solves the world's problems, and I believe that for a very long time. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, question three: What's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause? What's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about my cause? Well, I will just say um, that colonialism is a hell of a drug. Um, in the sense that it produces histories that become very hard for people to think outside of. And I think one of the things that I am trying to do as a historian is, is trying my best to think in ways that, that address that in kind of a significant and sustained sort of fashion. Mm -hmm. That's such a good line. I'm going to remember that forever. Colonialism is a hell of a drug. It's a hell of a drug. Like and it makes you think all sorts of things yeah. that are not the case. Yeah. It makes you not see things that are obviously there. Yeah. Um, and it really, um, whiteness is a hell of a drug. It makes, yeah. um, it makes people defensive. Like it makes them like, well, you know, I, you know, yeah, it's, it's very hard to, to tell people the historical context of why, or, or like what has contributed to their quality of life. And people don't like to hear that that was not a doing of their own, you know, hard work and, and uh, you know, pulling up their bootstraps and stuff. So it's, yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Um, you know, and I have lived a life and my ancestors have lived a life which have been enormously aided by the, the state in Canada from a whole range of ways to claims to um, land, to crown land, which we can think of as treaty land, um, to my, the fact that I own property within a treaty area, that is me exercising a treaty right. Um, and very, very small and large ways, um, our lives have been created through a system which has stripped those things from indigenous people. 
or has offered them to them on only very diminished and hard fought for terms. And it's very hard to think otherwise, but that is our goal. That has to be that, that we have to, and one of the things that history does is it gives us tools to imagining that the world could have been different. Mm. And I think that is something that we can think about. Very well said. Question four, what's a time in your life where you had to pivot because plan A wasn't working out, so you had to go to plan B? Plan B. So I don't know if this is so much a pivot. So the the, sh the, uh, the book that I wrote on um, histories of Winnipeg and colonialism and drinking water um, is not my conventional area of expertise. I'm mainly a 19th century historian. Um, I haven't at that point wasn't working so much on Winnipeg, but in the middle of finishing another very long term project that was on kind of a 19th century kind of colonial British Empire story. Um, the sort of local community um, response, particularly from Shalik 41st Nation and a range of sort of allies working with them shifted kind of public conversations and awareness around water in Winnipeg. And in that context, I thought, I think I'm going to write, or would it be a good idea if I wrote this sort of short kind of book that would kind of explain these histories? Mm. And so I, I did that. It was published by um, a local press called Arbiter Ring, ARP, in 2016. And I've continued to kind of work on it since then. So mm. I don't know if it was so much that it wasn't working out, but that I shifted gears and I've been... I've learned a lot and I've been, um, I think I like had the real kind of privilege and opportunity to work with a whole bunch of people that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise have worked with. And I've learned a lot and I really enjoyed it. Cool. Great answer. Uh, question five, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Oh, the best advice, you know, advice is a really tricky genre of communication. <laughs> the best advice I've ever been given um well i think sometimes the best advice i'm given and i give myself all the time is is to slow down a little bit um as somebody who's reflexively pretty kind of quick off the draw um and all sorts of ways i think the, the advice that i constantly give myself is um to kind of slow my roll um, breathe just breathe yeah. breathe at their own pace um, the advice that somebody once said in a yoga class, um, too, that I still sometimes think about is just do the work. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that I think a little bit about, particularly about being a non-Indigenous person living in an Indigenous place, is to be a good guest. Mm. Um, and to think about what that means um, because guests are valued you know they're welcome but they're not welcome and valued under any terms. Uh, they have responsibilities they have relationships, they have things that they can and, and should attend to. So I, I think too, a little bit about what that means in the long term to be a guest in a treaty territory. And um, I think about that advice too. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, what advice would you give your childhood self if you could talk to her right now? <sighs> oh, my childhood self, if I could talk to her. Um, I think I tell her that she could do some things she didn't think she could do um at the time uh i think i would tell her um to do the work you know and i think i would tell her that she was living through change and um she would always be yeah i think about that a lot like i think i as sort of a when you see all the protests happening and then you read about the history of protests and then you think nothing is ever changing it's frustrating to me to 
how incremental and how baby steps that change actually is. So it's like, it's hard to stay vigilant and stay passionate about the causes when it's like, this stuff has been happening for forever. We're constantly fighting against it. It's like hard to kind of stay, stay passionate, you know? Yeah. 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 And you know, uh, power structures are structures, right? So for them to shift, a lot has to happen. But we have also both lived through times and we will where we have seen changes happen. True. Um, And they will continue to happen. Great, great answer. Great, great comments as always. Um, Last question is kind of a weird, hard one. But what do you want to be remembered for? Oh, what do I want to be remembered for? Um, what do I want to be remembered for? Uh, I think I want to be useful in multiple levels of, of what use means. I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that kind of women's history or whatever teaches often that, you know, women, um, and this, this includes, you know, from a range of different contexts, have, have, found ways to kind of get things done that matter, that matter to people um, and to the communities they are part of. Um, I think I want to be remembered for doing the work and for being as useful as I can be uh, and for being part of change and seeing that change as an opportunity for growth. Beautiful. Well said. Adele. Adele Perry, Distinguished Professor from the Department of History and Women's and Gender Studies. Thank you for talking to us today on the, on the podcast. Uh, good luck in the future and uh, yeah, be well. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Adele Perry from the University of Manitoba for the conversation. I really enjoyed this one. Um, she has a great perspective and I learned a lot and there's a lot to think about moving forward when it comes to reconciliation and COVID and everything that's going on in the world. Uh, So thank you very much to her for all of her insights. And thank you for listening. If you, uh, if you know someone who you think would enjoy this episode or any other episode of the podcast, please go ahead and share the link. It's helped out tremendously giving uh, more ears on the pod, getting more ears on the podcast and growing our audience. So thank you to everyone who has shared it on social media or tweeted it out, put it on Facebook, anything like that. It's been very helpful and uh, I'm eternally grateful. So thank you. All music on the show is composed and produced by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his original music at trentonburton.com. Because in Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation by visiting wpgfdn.org or by following us on social media by searching at wpgfdn on pretty much all the platforms. Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and all of the above. My name is Nolan Bicknell. You can follow me at Nolan Bicknell on all socials. And remember, history is not a burden on the memory, but an illumination of the soul. Bye-bye.